Julia Adolph, and welcome to Loose Leaf Notebook, where we will explore the connection between creativity and mental health, nurturing artistry, emotional intelligence, and self-care. I'm a composer, and I will be sharing my own personal creative process and journey towards mental health, as well as inviting other artists and creative individuals to share their own inspiring stories with you. Today, I am joined by librettist and singer Aidan Feltkamp, who also serves as the Director of Emerging Composers and Diversity at the American Composers Orchestra. Aidan and I talk about what it means to be a Director of Diversity and what that work entails. And Aidan also very openly talks about how singing, writing, and transitioning helped them with their mental health. Hi, Aidan. <laughs> hey, how's it going? Good, how are you? Doing good, considering <laughs> everything. Yeah, I would love to hear just how this time has been for you. Ah, uh, great question. <laughs> um, so it's really interesting because like right at the beginning of the pandemic, of course, we all went through this like, this is canceled and this is postponed. And so like everyone's calendar just like totally thrown up in the air. Um, so all my projects were like, all of a sudden gone. And I was like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing this year. Right. Uh, and was still feeling at the beginning of pandemic, like super like ready to do something. Sure. Uh, and so I had a commission come in for an opera and I was like, sure, great, love it. Um, like sat down and like wrote it in a few weeks, which is like way short and have been writing like a bunch of poetry since then, but nothing like long form. Um, been doing a lot of short fiction work mm. um but i find it's really hard to focus yeah. um once i got past like month three or four of the pandemic and quarantine it's just so hard to focus so yeah. i'm like kind of glad i don't have to like zone in on a big project that takes a lot of brain power and like a lot of sustained concentration right because it would be really tough so I've enjoyed these like spurts of like energy and spurts of creativity and like going with that and making something short and then kind of getting to like put it to the side and do something else. Right. Yeah. Because you actually have like a nine to five job, right? Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> I, I'm super privileged to have a nine to five job. So I kind of write on the weekends. I write after work. It's also just something that like really is so enjoyable that I don't want to skip my writing time. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's nice. It's it's a nice um, balance for sure. So you're the director of of, uh, of diversity and emerging composers. What is a director of diversity? Maybe we should start there. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and um, yeah. So my position specifically is a little different, but a general chief diversity officer is kind of like they're technically an HR person. So okay. they look at the company across the board and looking at recruitment, looking at hiring, looking at um, pay structure, looking at ERGs, which are employee resource groups. So like affinity groups, ways for people who are from marginalized communities to be together and to like cause change within their organization. So it's a lot about like, if we're talking logistically in a company, it's a lot about process a lot about how are you hiring how are you looking at resumes how are you what do you consider experience what do you consider quality what do you 
consider excellence. We come to this terrible word excellence in classical music all the time, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where people love to say, oh, um, the only thing we care about is excellence, as if that's like only means hiring white people, only hiring male people. Like, it's just like this code word for we're not going to do the work to like look outside of our own prejudice for others to hire and bring in. Um, so it's kind of like this HR, but it's also training and bringing people up to speed on these education gaps of equity that we all have, whether mm -hmm. it be racial equity, gender equity, accessibility equity. There's so much that we all need to learn. So you're dealing with the pandemic and then you also have this new attention to the importance of diversity, which obviously you've been working in for a long time, but there's now like a new national focus. So what has that been like for you? It's exciting because there's like a lot more allyship happening. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, as anyone who works in equity long term knows, like, like it comes and goes in waves. And then mm -hmm. people who are doing the work are doing it consistently. So like, we're used to seeing these like surges. Um, and granted, this surge is larger and more widespread than we've seen in a long time, which is really exciting. Again, super exciting to see. Um, but like, you know, it's not gonna, like we have to take that moment and like really do as much education and um, exposure to the, the lens of diversity and equity as we can, as people are engaged with it. Cause it's not gonna last, or I don't think it will in my personal experience. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and I don't wanna be pessimistic about it or like say anything like is bad about that it's kind of just the way it is um mm -hmm. like i wish that every single person was like as dedicated as that all the time but i don't know that that's sustainable from an energy level from just like a, a life level that's it's just um i think it comes down to people realizing that they need to put on this lens of equity and see their own blind spots and see their own um, where they can be an ally um, and how to be a good ally and just educating, filling in those education gaps that we all have. So, you know, as, as white people, like learning about race and learning about racial, racial equity and what is the history of our country when it comes to racial justice and what has the movement been doing and what are they doing now and what are they looking to be doing in the future and how can we support that? But yeah, companies, I think, have a real... And, and, you know, our industry has a real, um, I guess, obligation to learn from what's happening right now instead of right. just pretending to yeah. care about it and then continuing to do what's always been done. So how do you balance that kind of exhaustion that does come from this kind of work, which is really kind of breaking down the process and not starting from scratch, but making a lot of changes, maybe. Yeah, there's rebuilding that goes in for sure. Yeah. Um, I like to think of it like when you have a, if you own a house, which <laughs> I have not, but if you own a house and the house is, you bought this old house, right? Mm -hmm. And it needs a lot of repair, um, but you have to live in that house. So maybe you do renovations on one room while you're living in the rest of the house. And then that room is done, but then you have to move on to the next room. 
and the next room. So it's like you have to live in the house, but you also need to renovate it or else that house is just going to fall down in a few years. So I think of rebuilding structures like that and that like you're in an organization and you, there are some changes that should be done immediately that should be, you know, really able to do right away. But there's things that are going to take time and they're going to take, you know, thinking about what is the structure? How can we rebuild that structure? What can we do that will complement what's already there? It's kind of this like strategic thinking. And so for classical music organizations, it's bringing in a consultant a DEI yeah. consultant at the very least like they're the ones who are gonna like <laughs> they'll yeah. audit your they'll look at everything you have going on they'll yeah. give you a plan for action you know really if you hire a chief diversity officer you're putting your money where your mouth is you're putting power structure where your mouth is like that's what matters it's a I mean money and power matter a lot mm -hmm. so just saying something or like doing something small on the side, that's not dedication. You know, right. it's like really thinking about what are the foundations of my organization? What are, you know, what's the drywall of my organization? What do the studs look like? Are they totally rotted out? Do we need to replace them? So how would you apply that then maybe on an individual level? Like just as um, a, a freelance artist? Right. Um, so as with anything, it's always about starting with the personal on the inside. Mm -hmm. So what I love to do is like when I do training for this about unconscious bias, mm -hmm. um, you'll have a wheel, right? And you'll fill out like, what's my gender identity? What's my race? What was my upbringing socioeconomically? What's my socioeconomic status now? Mm -hmm. Where did I grow up? Am, am I a U.S. citizen, like naturally born? Am I, is English my very first native language? Like all these things that maybe we don't think about, but have a huge impact on our lives. And so I start to look at this and I say, well, you know, I'm a transgender non-binary person. So like I have to deal with like sexism every day. Right. Mm -hmm. But then I'm a white person. So right. I never have to deal with racism. Right. So seeing that I'm like, okay, so I have to educate myself about race history and race equity. And, you know, that's where I should put my support, like whether it's financial, whether it's volunteering, whether it's just like, being there uh, as a sounding board for others that need to talk about it. Um, like as a white person, just, you know, reaching out to other white people to start that education process, mm -hmm. wherever anyone's at. Um, so like, that's kind of like the first step, I think, is like identifying like, yeah. where am I, you know, where am I part of a marginalized community? And where can I like find, you know, that community elsewhere and like connect with that and therefore yeah. give myself strength. But then also where, do I have privilege and how can I be an ally? Like any small step, like the first step is a good one. So, you know, it's just like one step at a time. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's not like a one-time thing. It's a thing that you integrate into your whole life. Right. So every day after that, it's a practice and you'll get better at it the more you do it, just like anything. Yeah. Um, and you know, and, and you'll mess up and uh, yeah. you know, you'll learn something that will blow your mind. and. That's just where we're all at, you know? We're all a mix of advantage and disadvantage of privilege and marginalization. Mm -hmm. You know, we all can like relate to that. Yeah, absolutely. I heard you talk about lenses and blind spots too. Is there another metaphor behind that? <laughs> I like to, yeah, I like to make, I mean, I'm a glasses wearer, so maybe that's why. <laughs> I have, 
I think that when someone is coming from a place of a lot of privilege, mm -hmm. it's very easy to kind of go through life and not see the disparity in the system, the mm -hmm. inequity. And so I think that for the first time when you finally are putting on the lens, putting on the glasses of equity and see things for how they truly are, you have a choice. You can leave them on and like deal with it and start to like learn, or you can take them off and forget that you saw that. And so that like these moments of wave, that's the thing is like people are, more people are give, being given the glasses for the first time. Sure. And so we're hoping that more people will keep them on. I see. But at the end of the day, you choose, like no one can put the, like force the glasses on you, you know, right. like you have to choose to put them on every day and see things for how they truly are. And, you know, the more you learn, the more you see. The more you see, the more you can't unsee, I hope. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, it's like, I, I like to think of it that way. Because I think that, you know, I grew up with a decent amount of privilege. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm like, oh, I'm not, I'm not a racist person. You know, I don't see color. That kind of thing is mm -hmm. the way I grew up. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, and the moment that I learned that being colorblind is still being racist, I was like, oh, I need to think about this a different way. And then when I was looking for it, I saw it everywhere. I saw the racial inequity everywhere in every system, just it's pervasive. Mm -hmm. And so once I saw it, I was like, okay, you know, now we can start to deal with it because we can see what's going on. So how did you become interested in this topic? It started when, I mean, I've always like knew that my gender wasn't like I was like, you know, assigned female at birth and I always knew that was wrong, but couldn't mm -hmm. figure out why or how or anything. So when I was starting to figure that out um, and I finally came out as non-binary, but not trans, um, I realized that like when I looked ar around me in opera, like it was so unconducive to my gender. Okay. And when I felt that discomfort, I looked around and realized I was surrounded by people of a high socioeconomic status. I was mm -hmm. surrounded by mostly white people. I was surrounded by able-bodied people and mm -hmm. mostly neurotypical people. Mm -hmm. So then I was like, okay, what's going on here? And so that's when I started to just like dive into the subject just because I was curious and because I had like felt that tiny bit of discomfort myself. And I was like, wait a second, what's going on here? Um, and so as I continued to delve into that, one day um, this recruiting service reached out to me and they're like hey we're looking for consultants for um a transgender like focus group do you want to do this and i was like what the heck is this sure um you know like money to like answer questions sure um, <laughs> and so when i was doing that the person leading the focus group was a diversity like consultant and mm -hmm. i was like oh this is like a thing right. <laughs> like, <laughs> And I did it as a consultant first, just like not even in music, but kind of just like in like corporate, like sure. like whoever, you know, that kind of thing. Because there just weren't many consultants doing trans and non-binary inclusion mm -hmm. stuff. So that was like my first focus because that was my like, not, you know, that's where my knowledge was. And that's where I, I still is my expertise just from sure. my own experience. Um, but then like you know, I, I started taking courses in it and learning more and like expanding my knowledge about the whole breadth of diversity. And then I realized, oh, like I can put this toward the industry that I like am in. I <laughs> and love, so yeah. I started to do that. So you mentioned um, also neurotypical people and able-bodied people. And um, 
since this is a show about mental health and uh, I've been talking about my own experience with mental illness, um, do you, like, where do you see the kind of conversation about um, mental illness? I'm not even sure what the language is, actually. I've never heard the term neurotypical. Enlighten me, please, (laughs) where you think Um, this is going, yeah. When it comes to disability and um, neurodivergence, that's like where a lot of people don't have much experience or education, and there's definitely not much education going on like publicly about it. Um, There's a lot of misconceptions. As you know, there's a lot of stigma around mental illness. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's something that, you know, hopefully will continue to change over time and you know, decrease that stigma. And, you know, I love that you've been open about it on your show. And I think that that's like a huge step toward it, destigmatizing it. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't want to give like a really boring definition, but <laughs> basically neurotypical is like this idea that, um, you know, your brain works in the way that scientists and medical professionals deem normal or average, um, which again is like, I don't really subscribe to that idea, but that's kind of the definition. So the things that would fall into neurodivergence or neural atypicality is like something like mental illness, like depression or anxiety or OCD, um, Mm -hmm. but also ADHD and autism and things that kind of have to do with how your brain is wired and how it reacts to stimuli and how it, you know, just how it works chemically. Um, and, and again, I'm not a doctor, but no, <laughs> what I, I understand yeah. is, um, <laughs> so like, you know, I, myself, I, I, um, you know, I have depression, anxiety, I also it's severe ADHD, okay. which I, I was not diagnosed until I was like 27, 28. Mm, with ADHD? With ADHD. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like, being on medication for it is like a whole new world. So oh. I have, so so grateful for that but you know most people have really just don't understand what ADHD is myself included which Mm -hmm. is why I couldn't self-diagnose for the longest time well and I've heard there's a lot of overlap like people who are diagnosed with anxiety who actually have ADHD yep um is that part of what happened to you I think it's more that like ADHD manifest really differently in different people okay. and so the thing that most doctors are looking for are kids that are you know male assigned at birth mm-hmm. and are super hyper and like can't sit and listen to anything okay we're like you know obviously i grew up uh assigned female at birth i would sit at, in class no problem like i loved learning i was always like super engaged at school um and so i i don't fit any of those ideas sure but also it's like, now that I'm an adult, like it's all about executive function. It's about your like brain being able to categorize things or put things in order that makes logical sense of like, I should do this and then do that. Um, a lot of my issues is like, I can't remember steps to things. Okay. So like, if there, say there's a recipe, right? Yeah. I can, it has to be written down so I can look at it. And like, I have to physically like keep track of where I am in, the thing like if you told me three steps i'll only be able to hold on to one sure like it just like drops out of my brain yeah yeah <laughs> um so like, things like that um or just like my brain feels like there's a hive of bees in it like all yeah. the time it's like really loud and you're like how are you supposed to like hear anybody <laughs> you know how are you supposed to focus when you have like bees in your brain 
So, you know, <laughs> medication helps and yeah. like therapy helps. Um, so yeah, so I would be neuroatypical or neurodivergent is the word I okay. like. Cause it sounds like, you know, I'm a sci-fi person yeah. or something. You know? <laughs> like, you know, again, the diversity within neurodivergence is so, it's so vast. It's huge, yeah. Um, Cause you know, even something like depression, which a lot of people have and is, you know, it's like manifests so differently across people. It's just about thinking about mental health and about how the brain works and how it's wired and how it responds to, you know, the outside world um, and the internal body. And, right. and you know, something about that is like atypical according to science. First of all, thank you for sharing that with me. And are you open to discussing, is there anything about your journey towards learning you have some of these um, difficulties and starting therapy, getting healthier, anything that you want to share? Sure. Um, <laughs> I mean, I mean, therapy has like been a huge, a huge game changer for me personally. Um, yeah. And just like, I can't believe that most people just can't even access it. I mean, I had so much trouble accessing it because of the healthcare in this country. That's a whole other thing. Okay. Um, but I, I think it really, I mean, the, the story really stems from two things. I mean, anxiety was something that I always dealt with as a child. Like I was just like, uh, so anxious and for no, like what I thought was no reason, but mm -hmm. there's something about, so I grew up in like a very, like Christian evangelical house and they don't really believe in mental health or mental illness. They kind of think that it's just like demons. Sure. So I never really like went to the doctor for it or right. like anything. They're kind of just like, Oh, the demons are bothering you. Just like chill right. out. And I'm like, yeah. thanks for being in like the 12th century. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, thanks for yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so once I was like a teenager, <laughs> I started going to therapy on my own. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, okay. Which, yeah, which was super helpful. And um, and I, I wouldn't even like really tell my family because they weren't supportive of it. Um, but, wow. you know, it, it's huge. And so like yeah. that's when I started to like think for myself in terms of like my sexuality and my gender and like working through these things that were so uncomfortable for me and mm -hmm. I couldn't figure out why. Um, and I think that a lot, a lot of my anxiety and a lot of my depression really does like fit into my gender dysphoria. What's your definition of gender dysphoria? So my definition of gender dysphoria and not the official one is it's a, a feeling of like extreme discomfort because the gender you're perceived to be by others or that your body feels like to yourself is different from the gender that you know yourself to be. Okay. It's a little tricky because I mean, at least for me, like feeling like weighed down by my body or like being so uncomfortable in my own body was like depressing and like would yeah. make my depression worse. Um, and, you know, being out in society and being misgendered and uh, just that, that would just heighten the anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, so since transitioning and since like, pursuing physical transition um, and social transition and therapy for it like the depression and the anxiety is still there but it's like so much less because it's not aggravated by the gender dysphoria so it's like really again interesting how they like intersect um 
but so it was like my therapist and then going to see um, a psychiatrist that I get these like depression, anxiety, um, you know, diagnoses, whatever it is. And, um, you know, that's a tricky thing and a scary thing. And um, I, I guess to say just to whoever's listening that like, you know, you don't need to do these things to be valid, that like what you're feeling is valid and you don't need like a diagnosis to be like, I am this or I am that. Like, you know your experience, like, you know yeah. who you are and what you've been through. Um, but I, I always, you know, I think if you're able to have access to, you know, therapy, it's like, for me at least personally, been absolutely a game changer. Having someone to talk things through and like, it's really just a matter of like figuring out yourself with someone to help you who like knows what they're doing <laughs> yeah. um, and, and finding ways, what are the coping mechanisms for this and how to, it's just learning to live with yourself in like a holistic and healthy way. Um, yeah. And, you know, and I think for myself, there was like a lot of shame that came with um, these mental, you know, mental illnesses yeah. and, um, you know, a lot of confusion of like what's going on or like just blaming myself for it. Um, and so like overcoming that has been huge. Um, yeah. And, you know, and again, like when it comes to transitioning, like you don't need to physically or socially transition to be trans. Like, mm -hmm. you know, that's not a thing that everyone needs to do, but I, I personally like needed to. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I guess that's where it comes back to my singing that like, you know, I was a mezzo and I put off transitioning for so long because of like yeah. my voice and not wanting my voice to change. And, you know, it just like, came down to, I just, I had to, and it was the right, right choice a hundred percent. But, you know, it's like, that's where like, you gotta make your, your decisions for yourself, you know, right. for your, for your, for your personhood. And I was putting like my career and what I thought I wanted above that. And it was just harmful. Yeah right yeah did you have thoughts sort of before you transitioned or before you made that decision that potentially your anxiety and depression would go away or because i mean i just know from experience like i've had so many fantasies about if i do this if i do this the anxiety will the, the illness will vanish and um gosh, something as, as big as ch transitioning. I'm just wondering if there was that, that, um, that curiosity or that, that hope that maybe those illnesses would, would change and, and sort of, what was your experience of that sort of on the other side too? I mean, we always have, our, I always have these dreams of these things just like disappearing. And right. I think, I mean, especially with like depression and anxiety, I think I would always tell myself like, oh, it's just the situation that I'm in that's making me anxious or, you know, it's just that I'm not like living, like I'm not being grateful enough for my life that I'm depressed or something like that. Right. Like I would always try to like logist, like think of a logistical or logical reason and like think, oh, if this reason is resolved, then right. I won't be depressed anymore. Right. Um, but I do think that like once I had the diagnosis, it was kind of then became a game of like, how can I avoid a really bad episode of this rather than thinking, oh, it'll go away. It was more like, oh, how can I avoid this getting bad? Or how can I like avoid this happening? Um, yeah. 
which again is kind of, I don't know that that's healthier, not, but <laughs> probably not. Um, but it definitely was this like, like game of like hide and seek with depression and anxiety. Um, when really what I had to do is like confront who I am and accept that. And I think since I've accepted that, like, yeah, I have depression and anxiety and like, it'll come and go in waves because that's what happens. And like, I should do everything I can to be healthy, of course, but it's not like my fault if things are, you know, if I'm going through an episode or things get really bad, like, that's not my fault. It's not like I caused it to happen. Right. Um, And so I think, yeah, of course, I was like, oh, it'd be great if I woke up and like all these things are gone. (laughs) Um, But I do think that like transitioning has allowed for that a little bit because like, I mean, I think about like before surgery and after surgery is literally night and day. Like I cannot overestimate the difference it has made for me. Like I didn't realize that like every second of my life, like there was a thought in my brain of like discomfort because mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. And since surgery, it's just gone. Wow. And like like that difference, like yeah. that release is just like inexplicable. It's just amazing. Yeah. And like having access to surgery and being able to like have it when I did and like being able to live beyond that is just like such a gift. And so I think there are things that they do get better and that like there are points of release, you know, and I think that that showed me that. Yeah. So I'm less like trying to fight off my mental illness and kind of being like accepting of it and like this is what it is and there's going to be like waves but like it'll be okay and i imagine it it makes it a little bit easier to confront some of those challenges feeling right in your body yeah (laughs) yeah definitely (laughs) like oh uh you know it's hard to explain because like even the even gender dysphoria like i've tried to come up with uh, with the metaphors i've tried to come up with so many metaphors to like explain to someone who hasn't felt it what it feels like um or like how it impacts you like every second i felt really uncomfortable in my body like before surgery but now i'm fine mm-hmm. where like if i go outside and someone perceives me as a gender that i don't want to be perceived as that dysphoria comes back immediately. Again, this is, I think, you know, everyone feels it differently and it it affects them differently. I hope that in the future when I'm older, that like non-binary is just as like normal as Mm -hmm. male and female. And then like, you know, being gendered correctly will happen just like randomly. Well, I heard you talk about it on on a different podcast about um, how you really discovered writing while you were transitioning. And so I'd, I'd just love to hear about kind of how you fulfilled yourself creatively when you made that decision to, right. to really, I mean, you made the decision to let go of your mezzo soprano voice. Yeah, I've always been a, a fiction writer. Like, ever, like as a kid, I would like dabble in it, but then like I got pretty serious about it, almost went to college for it. Like, so I've always been a writer, but I've never, been an opera libretto writer until more recently um so yeah so when i was thinking about or like dealing with the fact that i had to transition i was like 
the thing that really gets me is that I want to be like in, involved in opera in a way that's not producing stuff because I had tried that and it wasn't like my favorite. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, I don't know what else, I don't know how else to engage with this art form in a way that will be fulfilling to me besides singing. And I don't want to bank on that happening. Mm -hmm. So I was just like, okay, you know, I was thinking about the different like ways I could be involved or whatever. And I was like, oh, I should write libretti. Like, why didn't I think of that before? <laughs> so I started studying and, and, and trying it out. And like, you know, of course, like wrote some crappy stuff, but that's what happens. Um, and then, you know, just wrote some decent stuff and some really nice composers <laughs> worked with me and like, you know, and, and, you know, actually doing the thing is the best way to practice. Right. Um, so, you know, it just like, it's such a good fit and it's an obvious fit, I guess. And I don't know why I didn't notice it before, but I just, I love it. And so like having that like in my life made me able to like start the transition. Cause I was like, if I don't have my voice, I have my writing and like, mm -hmm. I can still engage in this art form that I like love so much. And that has brought me so much joy, you know, in a way that's not the same, but it's still to me, extremely fulfilling. So were, did you f discover the libretti writing kind of before you made the medical transition? And, and so you're saying that helped alleviate some stress? Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, the, I for years, I, like, to, like, knew I had to transition, didn't want to admit it. Like, so, I mean, I always had this, like, my brain kind of, like, trying to bargain of, like, you know, mm -hmm. what can I do? Um, but then when I was like, okay, I have to do it. Yeah. That's when I sat down and was like, okay, what's the thing that I'm going to do that's not singing? Yeah. And so like I started writing before, cause it's a process to start hormone therapy. Mm -hmm. So like from my decision to actually starting was like, there's a gap there because of medical and sure. stuff. There's all these hoops you have to jump through. Um, and so that was kind of where I, st I started writing right away, you know, just trying it out. And while I was waiting for my hormone therapy to start, but I knew that I couldn't start that process unless I was absolutely sure. And so that was kind of the thing that helped me be absolutely sure, yeah. I guess. And then it, you started singing again in your new <laughs> voice? Yeah, a little bit. A little um, bit? Well, I mean, technically, yes. Um, I sang for my... Um, I had like a surgery fundraising concert that was super awesome and so many people just like gave of themselves for that and it was just so beautiful um but i sang for that and that was with my like new voice and that was terrifying and then i sang <laughs> excerpts from the marriage of figaro um like right around new year before uh -huh. covid okay um and so I've done a little bit of singing, but um, it's just, it's a totally new instrument and I don't feel confident. <laughs> like, you know, I feel like I have to do so much training to like really get there again. Has any of what we've talked about, um, I don't want to say prepared you for the pandemic, but um, helped you cope? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think going through tough times, I found that writing actually singing and writing um have really helped me there have been times when it's just too much and i actually can't do anything but right. in, when things lessen up um 
that singing, performing, writing has really helped me not only cope, but kind of process. The story that makes the most sense, I think, to tell is um, like the thing that helped me process, uh, like I was just kicked out of my house for being gay. Okay. So like that was a lot. <laughs> and immediately I thought like literally I was learning the role like as I was getting kicked out, um, was singing the lead in Sweets by Kate, which is a new opera by Griffin Candy. And it's about, it's it's so funny. It's a comedy about lesbians and the devil and a sweets shop and it's so good. Um, but the main character in that that I play is someone who like got kicked out of her house 13 years ago and she comes back to her hometown because her father passed away and she brings her partner with her and like the whole town is like freaking out about them being lesbians mm -hmm. and singing that role like I think that it was a huge part of like my healing process there's such a huge release in singing in the emotional aspect of it that mm -hmm. it's just like allows you to or at least me to like begin to heal from it and mm -hmm. process what happened and like move beyond it um and writing has definitely been that for me too i have to plug my anthology that's coming out um Ooh. yeah so i'm working with new music shelf i'm putting together an anthology for trans and non-binary singers so oh wow an anthology yeah. of, of scores of music yes okay. so it's for voice and piano and things that are eligible have e one of the three things either the composer is trans and or non-binary the libretto or text was written by someone who's trans and or non-binary or was written for a singer who is trans or non-binary okay so it kind of like i'm trying to keep it as open as possible but the point is so that people who are trans and non-binary have a place to go to find repertoire so that teachers have repertoire to work with their trans and non-binary students with and that programmers can go and look and see who are the composers who are working on this kind of stuff so that's, that's the goal amazing i have to shout out turn the spotlight i'm a fellow with them and that's like how this project came to be so i'm super grateful to turn the spotlight they're awesome awesome like programs so check them out so if listeners want to read your libretti or, you know, find out more about you, where can they go? Sure. So I try to keep everything on my website to make it easy. So it's AidenKimFeltzCamp.com. Um, I have some libretti examples there with video and recordings and it's fun. Um, and some of my writings I've written for like New Music Box and uh, some other stuff that's kind of more like educational or think pieces or whatever. Um, and some of my poetry that's been published recently will be up there. Um, Great. Yeah, that's, that's the place to go. Gosh, thank you so much. This has been such a wonderful conversation. You're welcome. I'm, I'm always happy to talk about this stuff. I'm so grateful for how open Aiden was today in our conversation. And it is really inspiring to see how Aiden made the choice to put their well-being first, their mental health, their physical health and even had to let go of a creative dream. Um, but Aiden recognized that creativity can take many forms and was able to find that way of expressing themselves artistically um, through other outlets. So thank you, Aiden, for your honesty and for your commitment to diversity education. 
and thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you for listening to Loose Leaf Notebook. I'm Julia Adolph, and the music you are hearing is my orchestral work, Dark Sand Sifting Light, performed by the New York Philharmonic with Alan Gilbert conducting. If you'd like to hear some more of my music, you can visit my website at juliaadolph.com or my YouTube channel, which also has video versions of all of these podcasts. Thanks again.